is the Beyond the Studio podcast, and you're listening to Season 2, Beyond the Studio West Coast Edition. I'm Amanda Adams. And I'm Nicole Muller, and we're here to help you figure out the business of being an artist. Here we'll share honest conversations with artists, makers, and business experts, and dive deep into the work that happens beyond the studio. Support for this season comes from Southern Exposure's Alternative Exposure Grant Program in partnership with Facebook's Artist in Residence Program and the Andy Warhol Foundation. If you find value in listening to Beyond the Studio, we'd love to ask you to leave us a rating and review on iTunes. It's the easiest way to show us some love and to help others find the podcast. Thank you so much in advance for letting us know what you think and for supporting the show. You might hear some adult language used occasionally on the show, so please be mindful of those around you and pop in some headphones if needed. Today's episode is brought to you by Storyblocks, an amazing stock image, audio, and video platform that we've had the pleasure of working with before. When you sign up for Storyblocks, you get unlimited downloads from their member library, so you can try out any clip you want, including HD and 4K footage, After Effects templates, motion backgrounds, and much more. Don't forget, all their content is royalty-free, so you can use it for commercial and personal projects, and they're yours forever. So check out Storyblocks' incredible video library through our unique link storyblocks.com slash beyond the studio on today's episode of beyond the studio podcast we are so fortunate to be talking with sharon loudon a painter and just amazing educator and speaker who i've been following for a while now i was first introduced to sharon's work through her series of books living and sustaining a creative life and this was far beyond amanda and i had started working on the podcast and it was really influential for me as a young artist to start to understand and to hear stories from other artists about how they were making it work. So I've been following Sharon's work since then and gotten the opportunity to hear her speak on a number of occasions. And those books have just been really influential for me and I would say too for the motivation uh, for Amanda and I to start the podcast and um, to bring on other artist stories in this audio format. Um, But we're really excited to speak with her for Beyond the Studio and for this episode of the Beyond the Studio Book Club. So Sharon, we just want to say thank you so much for being here today oh my god thank you both you're amazing i mean that was so nice of you to say those kind words so thank you for having me oh absolutely we're so excited to speak with you um and just for our listeners who might not be familiar with your work both your creative practice as well as the work that you do and speaking with other artists um, i wondered if you could just give us a quick background on your own work so i think of myself as an artist in different ways. So it's not just making the work, whether it be painting, drawing, sculpture, animation, a little bit of performance, probably get into that more collaborations. But also, as you kindly mentioned, these books that I'm still working on, I have a couple more books coming forward and a senior editor of a whole series of 10 books. And then also advocacy work. In addition to that, the artistic director for Chautauqua Institutions School of Art Residency. Amazing. Thank you. And you had received your 
your BFA from the School of the Art Institute of Chicago and an MFA from Yale University. I was wondering if we could backtrack in your career to some of those early years uh, just out of grad school or maybe earlier moments in your career and talk a little bit about how you were sustaining yourself and what were some formative experiences in starting to define for yourself what life as an artist or what having a career in the arts would look like? Well, thanks for that question and all the questions you had sent me in advance. Good, good homework and preparation. <laughs> I really appreciate that. Of course. Right when I got out of school, I had a tremendous amount of debt. My parents didn't pay for my education. So I came to New York with my friends from New Haven, which was about an hour and a half away. And so it was easy because all of us pretty much ventured to New York as a community. But it was a small community and not a lot of us were exchanging with one another, which was pretty formidable for me because it enabled me to think about what I wanted in a community, which was really the desire that stemmed me doing the books that I did, but also all the advocacy that I do today. So when I got out of school, I just got a job as an assistant for a lighting designer who's still to this day a very dear friend of mine. And I, I enjoy filing and administrative work, actually. So I found a job that was really something I enjoyed, but also fulfilled what I didn't have, which was a computer at the time. I, Because I had so much debt, I couldn't pay for a, a computer to use to get me out of that job. So meaning that I would use that computer after hours to apply for different opportunities that enabled me to move on to that job to other things. I think that's a smart way to approach it too. And maybe for some artists that are earlier on in their career listening who might have a future vision or maybe even a dream job in mind for themselves to think about some of those early experiences or initial jobs as platforms to maybe develop skills or to gain access to resources that can allow them to continue on that path. Would you be able to take us through a little bit of your career since then? Like after that first administrative job, how did things start to evolve and how did those lead into other opportunities? At that time, when I was struggling with all of that debt, and that was before the laws were that protected consumers from collectors just calling at any time of the day and morning and evening to get money. It was emotionally really, really draining. Uh, I, I mean, nobody should feel sorry for me. I incurred all of that debt, but I paid those debts off in 10 years because my family, which is my husband really, and my friends, my husband being a jazz musician and creative thinker, also really good at economics, thought about different ways to juggle money so that we could pay those debts off. And then in addition to that, I applied for everything under the sun that fit. And I landed on a few things that enabled me to get out of that debt. So unraveling of that time over the course of that 10 years, at least after I graduated and having different jobs and teaching jobs with the base of that lighting designer assistant position, it was like an office manager position, enabled me to start to balance my life with the work balance as being an artist. Like how do I work in my studio while having no money, which meant that after many years of painting and working on canvas with these big paintings in graduate school and then 
I'll never forget it. I got out of school and I had to leave them on the sidewalk. It was actually really sad oh. um, for me, but I couldn't yeah. afford to have them. I didn't have the storage or space. And I'm sure that many other artists could understand that and could similarly experience that. It's interesting. It was only until that experience that I realized in teaching too, that to be mindful for students to think about the materials they're working with that at the time may be really golden, but then when they get out and especially people working with technical things like equipment that they wouldn't have access to, what do you do when you get out of school? So fortunately with painting and drawing, I could use really cheap materials that enable me to continue to create while I was in this place of transition. Yeah, that's a really good point and an important consideration for artists at any stage, but especially in those transitional moments as to how are you going to adapt your practice to the resources or the space or the funding or whatever it is that might be available to you at that time. Yeah, I think adaptability is really also the responsibility of, especially if you're going to school like at MFA program or even a BFA program of the, not only the artist to ask questions, but also really of the institution to be able to offer things like good professional development, good studio practices, or at least sharing what those mean from different resources. There's no one way to be an artist. However, those who are privileged enough to have those positions to teach should be able to share their experiences enough to prepare somebody for when they get out. I could have actually asked those questions, uh, but I didn't ask them either because I was just in the utopia of a different time and generation thinking that I would be taken care of when I got out of school by the market, by a gallery, by a lot of the mythologies that I was drunk on um, (laughs) when I got out of school. I think that's such a relatable point of view, though, regardless of when you're getting out of school. I think especially the way a lot of art school programs are set up, it's so easy to get in, in the mindset of like, I'm focusing on making my work. And if it's good enough, it will sell and it will be out there. And there's so much more work that you you don't even realize involved with getting your work in front of people and with getting them to pay attention to it, making sales, finding ways to market yourself, putting together a show. Like there's so much involved that it's really easy to get out of school and not even know all this stuff that you need to know. Right, exactly. But I'm bothered a little bit about, how can I say this in, in the most fragile way? I have no filter, so I don't want you to no take worries. this personally. But in the way that you're commenting here, that's so geared towards the market. And to me, that's an old way of thinking about an artist's practice and the way they sustain a life. Mm-hmm. So the options aren't just about selling work or having work in a gallery. That's just one part of the ecosystem. Yeah. Both selling work in and out of a gallery and most people do not sustain a creative life most artists do not sustain a creative life with the dependence on a dealer and not a drug dealer i mean a gallery (laughs) dealer right and i actually don't like even saying that dependence because i think that how amanda how you just phrase that yields towards that idea Mm -hmm. and i i do think a lot too many artists was going to say a lot of artists but too many still have that mindset. I do think the gallery artist partnership, when it's healthy, can be very rewarding, but healthy doesn't mean sales-wise. 
I think a gallery artist relationship and sales ebb and flow for many different reasons, some of which are uncontrollable. And as much as a gallery can help an artist in many ways with validation, first of all, with bringing their work into their gallery and showing it and showing collectors or whomever the work of an artist, it doesn't guarantee anything beyond that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad you said that because something that's really been um, expanding for us since we've been having conversations with artists and certainly since we've started the podcast is the idea that there are so many different ways to make it work and make a living as an artist and that there are so many different art worlds as well that I think what you're describing these kind of older traditional models or this like embedded idea of these hierarchical structures where artists are dependent on these other systems to sustain themselves is really broken down through your books and through you know the stories of other artists that are really making it work in different ways and I want to talk about your books too and a lot of the stories that you've been learning through that but I'm curious a little bit about your um, personal story to know how maybe the ways that you're able to support and sustain yourself and your work has changed or what it looks like today versus when you were first juggling those admin and studio assistant jobs early in your career? Well, first, thanks for your kindness in regard to these books that I've done, but I'm I, the books are artist-to-artist projects in my mind. I was just the catalyst mm-hmm. for them, where, as you said, they're platforms essentially for sharing stories of other artists, which I feel I feel very humbled and grateful to make space and have space for artists to share their stories to enable all of us to grow from them. And I'm grateful, very grateful for those contributors who have done that. Mm -hmm. I would say for me personally, 70% approximately of my income comes from big temporary and permanent projects that are in the public realm. Not public art necessarily, but mostly in museums. And I love working with museums because they have a lot of tentacles into community. I think my big projects, I would say my big projects are places for the opportunity for inclusivity, but also they are inclusive just given the materials that I use and you can reflect yourself in these aluminum big sheets that I use to do these big structures. I also take that platform and use it as an opportunity, especially taking space in a museum to do outreach to different artists and create opportunities, hopefully for them and with them and learn from them in different communities. So for example, I have an exhibition up right now at the University of Wyoming Art Museum, where I'm very grateful to have collaborated with the Wyoming Arts Council, who between us and also the education department of the University of Wyoming Art Museum, we did professional development conversations and workshops and then went over all over across the state, I believe in five to five or six different communities and met with artists in their studios. And then I was just in Tulsa, Wyoming on the occasion of a current exhibition and big commission that we just put up last week where last Sunday I met with a bunch of artists at a bar, which was so fun. I mean, probably some of the best fun I've ever had with a new artist I've ever met. Two artists specifically from two collectives, the Black Moon Collective and the, I want to say Holy Mother Collective. I hope that's right. Yeah, we'll find it and we'll include links in our show notes to these too. That would be great. Nonetheless, I just 
met them and I really enjoyed uh, meeting them. So Alexandra was from the Black Moon Collective and Lydia was from the, I believe it's the Holy Mother <laughs> Collective. I want to make, I want to, I'm not sure actually about that, but nonetheless, I was really inspired by them. And then we're meeting again in May and then in November. And I guess my point is that that kind of collectivity and sharing that museum experience with artists is crucial for my well-being and financially sustainability in that way that being sustained by that project. But sustainability is not just financial, it's emotional, it's social for me, it's qualitative, it is towards the growth of my well-being as an artist. So 70% comes from these big projects and then 29.9% comes from teaching, lectures, working for foundations, consultant work, independent odd projects, serving on some boards and nominating committees. And then the 0.001% comes from royalties from my books, which I split with all of the contributors. So it's a big patchwork, sort of like mm -hmm. the 70% is a foundation by which then I quilt all over it. That's a great metaphor. And I love how you're bringing these other facets of your practice together with these large kind of solo exhibition opportunities. And I've seen you do this in a number of different ways. I wasn't aware of the studio visits and the series of discussions and workshops around it too, which is really great to hear about. But I also really love how you bring in and acknowledge the artists that were a part of the installation itself and just in the way that the piece is framed. So it seems like collaboration is really at the root of all these different aspects of your creative work. I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that idea. Um, has collaboration always been a really core part of your creative practice? Or is that something that's sort of taken shape over time? Because one thing that is really, I think, unique about the way that you approach your work and life is this spirit of generosity. And that's something that we really admire and value about you and about other artists who are really spearheading these conversations that are open and transparent amongst artists and about sharing knowledge and resources with each other. And so I was wondering if you could speak a little to that and where that spirit of generosity and the importance of collaboration um, kind of originated for you. Was well, so kind of you to say all that. You're so nice. Both are <laughs> examples of generosity, of giving space to others, and certainly of me today, and I'm very grateful for that. Well, thank you. You know, I was very afraid of collaboration because I always had thought it was something that had to be formal until not that long ago. I didn't, couldn't connect, and I didn't connect the social aspect aspect of being an artist with being an artist. I always thought it had to be separate. And I think that has to do with how I was taught in a different generation of how, for example, painting, drawing, sculpture is all divided in many schools, but it's not so divided. It hasn't really been actually, if you think about just fundamentally of even artists in the Italian Renaissance or artists any time that people were painting and drawing, they were painting on canvas and drawing on paper and printmaking at the same time. Those are different media, but they're also multiple hats, right? 
And so having could apply that, having thought of that and all the different media I work in and the way I live my life, I started looking in to think about holistically who I am as an artist and that everything I do under the umbrella is being an artist. Mm -hmm. Just because I make work in these big installations or painting or whatever, I actually don't see that any different than the creative work I do with my books, for example, or talking to the those artists in the bar, which I do have clarification, it is the Holy Mother Collective and the Black Moon Collective. I've said that now three times, so everybody oh, has to look them up. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm very inspired by them. So I see that all together, but I think what really happened was a few people changed my life. So certainly my husband has, in thinking about jazz, jazz music is obviously performative, but it's always collaborative. And then Harav Ratanian, who is such a close friend, really sort of blew it out of the water for me because he is not only a critic, he's a curator, artist, photographer, performer. And we collaborated together formally last year at the Sharpalentis Foundation, where I was fortunate enough to have a studio. I don't know if many people know listening to this, but the Sharpalentis Foundation offers an opportunity to have a free studio for a year in New York City, specifically located in Dumbo in Brooklyn. Oh, that's amazing. They're they're very sizable studios, and I believe 16 or 17 people get in out of thousands who apply. And I was very humbled and grateful to receive that opportunity, so I decided to share it and do something that I've never done before to be able to grow my work but take risks in the work. And so after collaborating so much in my books, which also taught me this bridge of collaborating in all forms, After working with and listening to so many artists, not only listening to their stories, but oh my God, reading them over and over and over again, I realized why not? Why do I have to stay in this sort of idea that comes from a divided place, that comes from an old idea that somehow I adopted into something that's of my own? So then Parag and I collaborate on installation and we'll be sharing a studio together starting in April, which is great. Oh, wow. And and actually making more work together. But I also collaborated with Jen Dalton, who's another wonderful artist who collaborated with me with the data that I accumulated from my book tours. We're going to be doing a publication together. So I'm, I'm really excited by that. And I, I have to say that I'm more excited about that than actually making work by myself. And right now, Mm -hmm. I'm I'm just not interested in that. I'm not interested in making work that is is solo. So even in the Sharp studio, I have people like Rhea Hurt, who heads up Trestle Gallery, who's fantastic, and Oscar Thomas, who uh, ran Pocket Utopia for years. And the three of us collaborated on a drawing. But so did Clarity Haynes and I. And that was just so much fun. I mean, there was this wonderful moment to be able to come together in conversation, both verbally, but also intangibly. And so I I guess that's where my head is right now. And it seems very natural, especially at my age, to go forward and actually just say, screw it to 
any of these old ideas and also to the market. I just don't care, really. Well, it's exciting to hear about how you've been creating these bridges between all these different types of work you've been doing and all these different facets to where what you had said earlier that you really see no division throughout any of these um, seems to to really be true in the way that there's all this crossover between all these different aspects of life. You've sort of already answered on the, answered this question, just expanding on the idea of partnerships and what that looks like between artists and within the, the quote-unquote art world. But I've also heard you speak in the past about partnerships in the sense of, like you were saying earlier, kind of breaking down these ideas that we have around outdated or traditional models of what it looks like to be an artist or the art world. And so I wondered if you could maybe share some examples of seeking partnerships outside of that or looking around you and viewing everyone as a potential partner and what that maybe has looked like or some examples of where that's come into play in your work. Because I really love that idea too, and I've heard some other artists speak to this. Again, just broadening our idea of um, who is a collaborator, who is a partner, and you know how can we all work together as a community and broadening that beyond uh, the arts even. So just wondering if, if there's anything that comes to mind um, in terms of partnerships outside of the creative community as well. Wow, it's such a big question. I read that question before and uh, the first thing that popped in my mind was everybody in my second book. I mean, that was the backbone mm. for the artist as culture producer is to share ways in which artists not only have a leg in what I would deem as the art market or different art worlds commercially, mm-hmm. but then also another leg in the public realm and what that means. So there are many, many different examples there that are well noted. Uh, mm-hmm. Well, maybe that's a great segue then to talk a little bit more about your books. Would you be able to tell us what the origin of that was um, and what inspired you to start the series on living and sustaining a creative life? Oh, sure. Thank you. In 2011, I was moderating a panel at the College Art Association Conference that was in New York. And the panel was called How to Make a Living with or Without a Dealer. And 400 people showed up at that panel. Wow. I remember saying either to myself or to others, I said, wow, it's great that you're here. And then it's not so great that you're here because it just shows the insatiable desire to have that partnership. And it also reflected to me the dependence or pull of that old idea, or it could be for some of the people in the room. So you never know who's in the audience. And I guess that day I must have been doing pretty well up on the stage and moderating. But my publisher was in the audience and she came up to me, a representative came up to me from my publisher and said, we really want you to write a book. And I remember mentioning to this to my husband, but also thinking, you know, I can't even write your artist statement. How am I going to do this? But also, yeah. I, I just not comfortable still to this day to dictate too much, even in the webinars I do or and I'm going back to working for Creative Capital. I'm, I'm going to be starting to do that again. I know you were involved with that, Nicole, at some point. Yes. But I just like to offer information from others. And mm-hmm. I can have my opinions in that, but I I just don't like the pedagogy, what I call drop-down pedagogy of someone saying what is right or wrong. There isn't any, and there's no way to be one way to be an artist. Mm -hmm. So instead, 
of writing something, I asked my publisher, what if I got 40 people to share their stories a bit about how they started a conversation, or at least in the book, they're starting a conversation, how they sustain their own lives. And that book just went bananas. It just went crazy. It's in its seventh running, sold in 24 countries and adopted by hundreds of schools all over the world. And so I took a 62-stop book tour, and that tour, my husband and I set that up. I think that it's a myth, in some cases at least, that the publisher establishes at least such a lengthy tour as I did. My husband and I did that, and we were actually experienced a house fire Christmas 2013, so we spent spent 229 days homeless on the road on this tour. And it was great, though because we traveled a lot of the country and I just kept building on it naturally, organically, actually asking friends and people in different venues to say, want to collaborate? I can bring this conversation to you. Can you hold a space for artists so we can have town hall forums to talk about what they need and want? And so we started collecting that data and then going into the second tour for my second book called The Artist as Culture Producer, Living and Sustaining Creative Life, that book expanded upon the conversation that started with Living and Sustaining Creative Life, the first book, into these mm. extensive essays about, again, about how artists sustain their creativity in different ways in the public realm, especially. So that tour was 102 stops in 14 months. And... That tour was also funded in partnerships with many different foundations that I established partnerships with myself and then fiscally sponsored by New York Foundation for the Arts as my fiscal sponsor and then independent donations as we did in our first tour from just people who wanted to see this conversation happen. And then I received funding to be able to share that documentation, which we're still in the process of doing. I feel really grateful for all of the partners that I've had. A lot of them have come from what I call cold calls, not physically picking up the phone and calling, but actually doing the research to see who I can speak the same language with in order to want to collaborate with them. I think that every relationship that has to do with moving, sharing, showing, extending ourselves of our work, et cetera, is all collaborative. Whereas, for example, if I'm showing with a gallery, they have a vision, I have a vision, it's about coming together. It's not serving the artist. Mm -hmm. So as far as the books go, now I'm gearing up for this third book, which is a beast of a book, Last Artist Standing, Living and Sustaining Creative Life, emphasizing mostly women over 50 And then the fourth book, I am collaborating with the brilliant Jessica Lynn, who is the co-founder of Arts.Black. She is extraordinary, and she's a wonderful person who's 25 years younger than me, and I'm 25 years senior, and I'm learning a tremendous amount from her. That book is called The Innovators, Redefining the Art World. I think that's our working title. And that will be selecting people in the art world who really make it work today versus what people really think of the art world, like from the 1980s. 
Mm -hmm. So do you see this series as continuing to evolve? Do you have a set number of books in mind? Or is this something that could be ongoing? So that's a great question. The answer is no. So to do these books is astronomically difficult. And the two books that are coming next, they're very rewarding, but they're very time consuming. Mm -hmm. I am a senior editor of a series of books, Living and Sustaining a Creative Life, dance, music, theater, academia and the arts, art history, feminist, craft. And my publisher asked me if I wanted to do this series by myself. And I said, no, I really want to share this experience. So I, I decided to give, designate contracts to a lot of first-time editors to share the wealth and share the opportunity for them to cite people in the same format as my other books about how people sustain a creative life and actually give them space to give others space to share their stories. And I just want to circle back. Jessica Lynn is the co-founder and editor of Arts.Black, which is a journal of art criticism from Black perspectives. And she is tremendous. And I'm looking forward to continuing our development of the book, The Innovators. And you can find information about that book and the series and Last Artist Standing and the two previous books on my website, which is livesustain.org. Thank you. I really love that perspective because another way that you're now continuing this legacy of the books and expanding the conversation is by bringing more voices in. And of course, that's been at the heart of the books all along. But just in terms of thinking about your own bandwidth and your own boundaries, and like you said, it's a huge time commitment and an investment for you personally, rather than maybe just, you know, saying that this is all that I can do and the project stops here, thinking about ways to expand that by allowing others to sort of take the rein and um, to become involved as well. Well, thank you. I, I believe in things hopefully never dying as we hopefully won't until we're supposed to until the end of our lives. <laughs> Uh, but sometimes, like Courtney Fink, who's the co-founder of Common Field, if you don't know Common Field, commonfield.org is a great organization, and their convening is coming up April 24th, I think, or 25th through the 27th, I believe, in Philadelphia. It's a tremendous organization. I would highly recommend looking it up. Anyway, she once said on our book tour, she's one of three people who contributed a conclusion to artists as culture producer. And she said, it's okay for things to fail. And I agree with that. It is okay. I do, though, believe that they should go for as long as they naturally can. And I did these online workshops for Creative Capital for about, I don't know, a year and a half or two years and they did really, really well. Yes, I participated in one and I would highly recommend if you decide to start doing them again, Sharon, and for anyone listening um, to sign up because it was really full of just invaluable information and I really learned a lot through it. So thank you for that. Oh my gosh, thank you. I'm glad. I'm grateful. I bring a lot of information from different voices mm -hmm. and I am starting them again starting in April. Oh, good. I think April 1st or somewhere around there is the first time. I think they just... It just came out with a notice today, I believe. But anyway, what I realized is I stopped doing them for a few reasons. And it kept pulling on me for a year that people were contacting me, asking, because artists contact me every day, and I'm really grateful that they do. My phone number is on my website. I'm open. I want to 
yield that example, but I also, I, I want to live that example. I want to be a part of our community and share where I can, but also learn and ask questions. And anyway, so after a year, I kept being pulled and I always believe in collaborating rather than doing things myself, at least right now, as I've said. So I'm going back to that. And so that those online workshops didn't take their natural life yet. They still are going. And so I guess my point is with the books, they are still going to. There's momentum and need mm -hmm. for these conversations. And people have asked if we're coming back to different towns where I toured before. And people see a need for especially artists who may be deemed invisible to have more of a say. So I, I believe that I have to keep going with a lot of these projects right now. That's so exciting. I'd like to go back to something you said a little earlier, which I was really surprised at. Um, and I heard you mention this actually in a talk that you gave during your book tour. I was able to see you here in San Francisco. Uh, this was, I think, at the San Francisco Art Institute for, I believe, the second book um, that came out. But you had mentioned that all of the current collaborations and partnerships um, on the whole, or around 85% of them, I think, had originated from some type of outreach or you taking the first step in initiating a relationship, which was really amazing because I think that another myth that uh, maybe a lot of artists hold on to is that at a certain point, things are going to start happening to you or for you or, you know, things just start coming to you. And maybe that's true to some extent, but I think you just reminded us that so much of our kind of destiny and our path really is in our own hands and that we should be proactive about seeking out collaborations or just starting a conversation with someone whose work we admire or who we feel really aligned with. So it was refreshing to hear you mention that really the majority of all of these had started out in that way. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that, just that idea of cold calling, like you said, and um, maybe how other artists can start to implement that in their own life. Well, that's what the webinar and Creative Capital Online workshops are based in, is, oh, that, great. is that methodology. So really comes down to research and seeing who you want to partner with and how to collaborate. It's really like dating and building relationships. Uh -huh. uh, I do, I thank you for saying that. It, it's true. 80% of the many opportunities that I feel very grateful to have received have come from building relationships and and not from things that have come to me. It's still the case that way today at 54. Last year was the first time I was ever nominated for anything. I've gotten very few grants in my life. The Sharp Foundation grant, that residency, was the first time I'd ever received anything like that in my entire life. It's not to say that people have to wait till they're 54 years old, but certainly some people wait a lifetime. I feel really humbled to have received these opportunities, but I'm also, more than that, I actually enjoy reaching out to people and developing relationships with others. I think that's natural for human beings to do. So I just don't know why it's not activated upon. Now, I'm an outgoing person. I am very private, though, in my private life. But I am an outgoing person when it comes to lack of fear or care of, quote, being rejected. I always say that there's no such thing as a rejection. It's really a difference of opinion, especially <laughs> when it comes to professional matters, because oftentimes such as things 
like grant applications or residency applications or opportunities period are judged in such a way that has nothing to do with the person personally. So I just have to believe that and have faith. But more than anything, the reason why I could do all of this is because I have a strong community of people that I surround myself with. And that's the key, I think, to sustainability as an artist. Man, talking to you reminds me so much of our conversation we had. Uh, we released this episode of several weeks ago, but with Karen Seneferu and her whole thing. And similarly with you, it's all about like bringing it back to the community. And it's not about the success of like I as the artist, but us as the collective, as the community. And I just am so appreciative of it because I think it can be very easy to have your personal ego get wrapped up in your art pursuits and bringing it back to the community is is such a wonderful opportunity for everyone to grow together and share that, that knowledge and experience. Well, thank you. And thank you for mentioning that episode. I listened to that. I think that's an absolute episode for everyone to listen to. Uh, I think both of you embody this, but I think if we have more of that, that would make our world a lot better. Now, that may sound really cliche and la-di-da, like very hippy-dippy and lots of daisies flying in the air and it's sunshine and there's no bugs and we're just running around naked in a field. <laughs> but honestly, it's when artists get to exchange and make it a purpose that's when things roll. I, I think most galleries and museum individuals may tell you that some, if not many, of the people that they work with came on recommendations, came from recommendations from artists. And so now I'm very grateful to be on these committees that nominating artists for residencies or I'm on a search committee right now for deciding a position for something I can't say. I think also artists positioning themselves in places like this too enables the artists who are generous out into the world. Like I won't even nominate anyone unless I know they're going to be generous to other artists. I mean, unless they've proven it, honestly, I won't do it. No way. Zero. Yeah. And I think that once again, it just all ties back to your spirit of generosity, which we, we could all use a little of. <laughs> well, you have it. So thank you. I love generous artists. I love exchanging. I love learning from them. I feel humbled and grateful to be in our community. Uh, I know I have a lot of support from them. I know that makes me happier to be around them. Like I said, when I was in Tulsa with all of these artists, also from the Tulsa Artist Fellowship, which is a great opportunity for many artists, people should look that up. It's a wonderful residency that's renewable and wonderful space, live workspace plus stipend. To be in that community of artists welcoming me, they didn't even know me. That's what happens. I think if we mm -hmm. say we're artists, there's this wonderful, magical door that opens. But also there are critics and curators who have visions too. And we shouldn't separate them out. Great partnerships happen across the board. I know that the work I do with Rog, for example, is really meaningful, not only to me, but others have mentioned to both of us that it's been meaningful to them. I love all of the collaborations that I've done with many different people, most recently with Scott Stulin, who's an artist, museum director at the Philbrook Museum. So you just never know. I think opening the door yeah. to many different people, lack of expectations really helps too. Yeah. <laughs> 
I feel like that's yeah. a lesson I've been learning in my life lately. Just don't set any expectations. Whatever's going to happen is going to happen. Yeah, and trust that those relationships might come to fruition maybe years down the road. And I just think it's wonderful to see how you've been able to bridge, uh, again, all these different facets of your practice and make unexpected connections that lead into future collaborations you could never have predicted. Um, And the books themselves, too, just evolving out of all these conversations naturally. Um, I think it's it's. A great example of that really taking shape um, over the course of a career. Well, thank you. You do it too. I love how both of you share about your own practices and keep me informed and get your work out there. I want every artist to do that, especially now. We really need it. Yeah. Especially in this political climate. Uh, but yeah. oftentimes our work is our truth. Yeah, a lot of this you've covered, I think, in speaking a little bit about the books. But if there's anything that you would want to elaborate on or that we haven't touched on yet um, that you think would be important to share. Like any topics that are most commonly coming up in panels? For me, I do this lecture series at the New York Academy of Art, and it's going into its 10th year. And I focus on discussions that are needed that can yield opportunities for artists or accessibility. Like, I think that that's a huge issue. I I want the art world to be transparent. I want every art world to be transparent as much as possible. So I try to do my best in that platform to do that, to uh, enable and empower our students, but also to make connections into the public realm. And I do that at Chautauqua too. So I guess would be how artists, discussions for me, how artists can sustain a creative life. I mean, that's still the obvious one and all aspects to that. In addition to that, what is the role of artists as an activist? And what does that mean? Even just singularly, but what does it mean to collaborate? Uh, What does it mean fundamentally simply to collaborate? Does it mean that it has to be formal as I tripped over and stayed intimidated by no is the answer and not just from my experience but from many others i found uh what is it like to be a woman today in the art world that's a very big question that i would like to answer with my next series of conversations next year at the academy and the reason why i'm focused on that is really because of the work i'm doing with this third book of last artist standing and last artist standing has taught me a lot And I just think women, especially women of color, who have endured a lack of visibility, I just applaud them for continuing to stick with making their work. And they are our examples to yield examples from. Well, we'll make sure to share links and to share your books with all of our listeners so they can further dive into these conversations or keep up with some of the upcoming panels and talks that you're a part of. Um, But what are some of the other places that people can see your work, both um, creatively and professionally, if they're interested in following along? You're so nice! (laughs) In Wyoming, at the University of Wyoming Art Museum, that's, I have an exhibition installation up there until the end of the year, or November, I think, or January. I'm not sure. I forgot. <laughs> um, Philbrook in Tulsa through January 5th of next year. Those are the exhibitions so far. I may be having an exhibition in New York in September. Stay tuned. And maybe a collaboration. That's my wish. <laughs> of course. Uh, on my website, yes, of course. Thank you. As far as panels at the New York Academy of Art, 
if anyone wants to visit Chautauqua this summer between June 22nd and August 10th, we'll be there. Plenty of room for collaboration and having a great time there. Diana Ross is coming to Chautauqua. Oh my <laughs> I'm so excited about that. I can't stand it. Um, let's see. And where else can you see me? Well, I travel a lot. This month alone, I'll be in Arkansas and Oklahoma twice, Oklahoma City and in Tulsa. After Chautauqua, I plan to go to, in the fall, maybe Kansas City. We're working on that. That's been on the works for a long time. But when the book comes out for Last Artist Standing, I'm sure I'll be touring too. But I won't be doing 102 stops. That almost killed me. It's insane. Yeah. But through both tours, we met over 11,000 people. And I really paid attention to what they said. And I want to honor those voices of the people who spoke out and Mm -hmm. try to meet those needs as much as I can. So I would say people listening here, I would love for them to follow me on social media. But more so, I'd love for them to share their stories with me. So they're welcome to put me on their mailing list. I mean that. And but don't ever send me attachments because I've had trouble with that in the past. (laughs) I don't think that's a good thing to do anyway. It's nice of you to open to open up your inbox to others to begin with. We know that can be an overwhelming space sometimes for us personally. So it's, again, very generous of you. Well, thanks, but I think everybody should do that. It may take me about a month to get back to you if you write me an email, but I will get back to everybody. I do really believe in open dialogue, and I want to try to be as much as I can as accessible as possible. But physically, it's really hard for me to get to places. Like I can't get to as many exhibitions as I can, or I want to rather. And starting in April, April 15th, exactly, I'll have a new studio and I haven't had a studio for seven months. So I will be spending a lot of time there, honestly. But nonetheless, I would still love to know what's going on. And I love connecting artist to artist and different people to different people who wear multiple hats and I'm happy to extend that invitation to others. But really, I would say the only people I'll give to are people who are generous to others. Hmm. Yeah, that's a good rule of thumb. I, But I, I love what's at the heart of that, which is, you know, maybe for artists listening, feeling like um, there aren't as many opportunities coming their way or they're not maybe where they want to be to kind of flip that around and to think instead about how they might be able to create opportunities for other artists. Um, so I think that's always a great way to... Um, shift the focus off of your own self and onto, um, like you've said, and like Amanda was saying earlier too, that collective community. Um, So it's a good way to reframe maybe um, your own work and the potential for what you can do um, as an artist if a lot of your time is spent maybe working alone in a studio or pursuing individual opportunities. I agree. Like after this podcast, obviously we've had this experience together and we did before and I'm I'm just really grateful to both of you for your time and your energy and what you do for artists. There's no doubt, just like in any other relationship, once you have an experience together and you like that experience, you want to do more together. I keep you all, both of you in mind and it's natural to recommend, it's natural to extend things to others. It's just a natural process. But it starts with generosity and it should end with generosity cultural reciprocity is extremely important some people like would send me weird i get emails every day and i'm happy to receive them but sometimes people write me and say you know i've done x y and z is that generous enough and if you have to ask yourself that and 
if you also have to say at the end of your life, you know, I've done enough for others, it's not to say you have to sacrifice your whole life for another person. I would never say that, especially as a woman. No way. I'm not going to give myself over. Yeah. And I'm still going to be myself and I'm going to be as loud as I want to. But at the same time, sharing and giving means caring, right? And so you can work on the balance, just like good time management, just like good professional correspondence, just like good professional exchange. There's things that we can do as adults to learn how to rebalance that out. And it changes all the time. I have to be mindful of my time. So do you. But at the same time, we can choose how to spend that time. Do we spend it in being generous to others or do we take all of it for ourselves? There's some yeah. got, got to be some kind of gray in between there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the show, for making your work, for being so candid and just honest about everything and for always pushing others forward. We're really grateful to have been able to collaborate with you. Yes. Amen. I'm really grateful to you both. And thank you for having me. And thank you for putting up with my schedule. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Thank you for being so, oh my God, I'm impossible. And thank you for everything that you do for artists. I really appreciate it. Oh. Yeah. Thank you, Sharon. Today's episode is brought to you by Storyblocks, an incredible stock image, audio, and video platform that's always adding fresh new content. With their subscription, you can get exclusive discounts on their millions of marketplace clips at one low cost, giving you more options to finish your project and stretch your creativity. So check out Storyblocks video library through our unique download link, www.storyblocks.com slash beyond the studio. That's it for this episode of the Beyond the Studio podcast. You can find show notes, references, and a brief summary of the episode over at our website, beyondthe.studio. While you're there, be sure to sign up for our mailing list to find out about upcoming guests, special announcements, and podcast giveaways. Oh my gosh, I'm losing my mind here. I'm I'm stumbling over all these organizations. No worries. Um, We'll we'll cut all this out. Oh, well, thanks. Perfect. Thanks. My husband is my project manager. He's amazing. Um, that helps a lot. Yeah. Right? It's it's amazing. Takes a, it takes a village. <laughs> it does. <laughs>